Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow. Uh, dude, I just got my mind blown. Uh, an hour and 10 minutes with Jamie wheel is like a hundred hours with, um, a normal human being. Uh, this guy is like, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's like sitting next to a dude. That's just like a wealth of information about how to level up and be a, the best human being ever talk about his flow genome project, his new book, uh, recapture the rapture. It's old book stealing fire. I mean, this guy is just an expert when it comes to leveraging the human experience uh, in every which way possible. So, uh, I, I can't even do it justice. You just have to listen to this episode. Trust me on this. Stay tuned. Amazing episode. Guys, welcome to today's episode of the greatness machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And boy, do we have a special guest. Jamie wheel is in the house. What's up, Jamie? Oh, doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, so good to have you here. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping and then we're going to jump right in the show. I'm super pumped to have you here today to talk about all sorts of things. But before we get there, I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping, uh, for audience members who are new to the show, greatness machine. We're about two things. People are living their passions and those are creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And Jamie here is neither short of passion nor greatness. So many cool things to talk about. Thanks for having me, Darius. Psyched to jump in. Yeah, pumped to have you here. So, you know, here at The Greatness Machine, Jamie, we love origin stories. You know, I love the context around people that are doing amazing stuff. Obviously, you're working on these amazing projects. I've written some some pretty profound books that I've had to gotten a ton of attention. Um, but, uh, you know, I think for mortal humans are like, I don't know how to do that. And and I always say, look, everyone's a human. It's about how do we apply our humanity to create the greatness. So I love origin stories because I really think that kind of gives people some background of like, hey, like that person started off kind of like I am and this is their their pathway. So I'd love a little bit of background, a little bit of your origin story on, on how'd you get to where you got to so far. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the showdowns just beats the hell out of me. Um, I, I just wake up, wake up a day at a time. I mean, even at, at cocktail parties, people are like, so what do you do? And I'm like, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I, I, I write some, I talk some, and I love to go outside. Um, so really, I would say probably one of the most formative experiences for me as far as like worldview shaping and kind of life path shaping was just that I was, you know, I was an immigrant, basically, and was kind of uprooted from a very, um, you know, like, BBC, all creatures great and small, like bucolic English countryside, boarding school, Harry Pottery kind of childhood. Yanked out of that and then dropped into America and and had to make sense of it with parents who had utter disdain for all things colonial. My mother was South African, my father was English, and we were in the provinces, you know, so like it, it was this bizarre experience of going to an American high school, going to college, all of these things, and sort of having no idea what the language and customs and norms of the natives were and was always kind of this sort of outsider looking in um, at these, these curious, these curious behaviors, including, you know, swinging from the rafters, animal house parties and proms. And, you know, even when I first got here, like what the fuck is peanut butter and bubble gum and how do you blow a bubble (laughs) and pickles and captain crunch cereal? You're just like, Jesus, what is this stuff? Right. So (laughs) Those were all big. Those were all big deals for me. I'm still not signed off on any of them fully. Um, so, so I think that right, like that notion of being a stranger in a strange land, led sure. to a deep and abiding sort of curiosity on the anthropology of how we do this human thing. And and then I was in. It was, I was in my senior year of college, and I was getting ready to apply for grad schools. And I was thinking of like. Yale and a handful of other programs in in the Northeast that had really good history programs. And then I saw that old Robert Redford movie, Jeremiah Johnson, which was kind of like the revenant with, you know, Leo DiCaprio before that, right? It was Mm -hmm. like him as a mountain man and, and it was him in the mountains of Utah. And it was actually for Robert Redford, it was his inspiration. Like he fell in love with those mountains during the filming of that and founded the Sundance Institute, which is now the Sundance Film Festival, mm. among other things. So like that was his big epiphany. And and watching it, I'm like, son of a bitch, where are those mountains? In fact, there's this crazy old mountain man codger who's like dressed in dressed in coonskins and and bearskins. And he's like, he's like, he's like, the Andes is foothills and the Himalayas is for children to play in, but the Rocky Mountains, Jeremiah Johnson, that's God's country. And I was like, all right. So I so I w- withdrew all my other applications and I applied to the University of Washington and the University of Colorado. I was like, I gotta get there. Nice. And that was really just the beginning of, of a path out into deeper adventure. You know, I started kind of doing surf rescue on the East Coast, on the Atlantic Ocean, but then went into ski patrol, went into outdoor guiding at the same time of, as pursuing this academic career. And and I, was, and I was studying basically kind of cultural anthropology and how did humans live in these mountains from prehistory all the way to tourism and, you know, everything else in between mining and, and all the bits and pieces, because those that was the terrain that we were mountain biking, skiing, exploring, and adventuring. And I was like, man, I have to understand why that trail is here. Why is that mine shaft here? What, what's the impact and the relationship between human culture and ecology and sustainability and all this stuff? And, and I, but I never wanted to do one thing or the other. I was never willing to be a dirtbag ski bum in a ski town. I was like, I love it, but I'm not going to deliver pizzas to do it. And I never wanted to just be a nerdy academic because I remember my, my turning point on that was we were living way up in the mountains above Boulder and I came back down for a class in like April or something. And, and one of my, you know, p- colleagues 
looked at me, looked at me with narrowed her eyes. She's like, why are your hands so tan? <laughs> and it was because I'd been backcountry skiing without my gloves on. Right. And I was like, ah, oh, fucking hell. I don't know. I don't know if like a career down in the basement of libraries assessing tax records is going to be for me. Um, so really that just kind of led to teaching and guiding and, and in, in increasingly interesting environments and just being forever curious about big, wild, open spaces and learning and life and leadership in those terrains where you can die because that, you know, really sharpens your focus. Um, and at the same time, always sort of super curious about the life of the mind, the, the intellectual elements and the history and the culture behind those things. And that really just kind of led me to founding, you know, the Flow Genome Project uh, about a decade ago, which was, hey, how do I put all of these things back together in a way that is completely aligned with my passions and interests and, and is maybe helpful to other leaders and to other people looking to level up their life and to find out what is their intrinsic motivation or what is their sort of source of limitless drive and inspiration. Because I knew that like living in Telluride, for instance, like I was like, I was like if I, I mean, I could just get on my mountain bike and leave my driveway and be pedaling up dirt roads and fire roads and, you know, to trails any day I wanted. And I did. And the same with backcountry skiing or anything else. And then when we moved to the East Coast, when our kids were little, I was like, I'm not putting my bike on the back of a bike rack to drive 30, 45 minutes to a trailhead to go and pedal. And nor am I going to go to a gym. And I was like, huh, this is really interesting. I'm basically a lazy, unmotivated bastard inside, <laughs> right? Inside all of the conventional realms. Like, do I go and do my workout? Do I punch out at CrossFit? Do I, you know, whatever. But I have this infinite amount of motivation and inspiration to get to a summit before sunrise, you know, or to beat my buddies mm. down a trail or whatever it might be. And I was just like, huh, that's really interesting. What, that Because it was such a widespread, like to this day, I haven't gone and succeeded at a gym workout, <laughs> you know, but, but on the other hand, right, have taken people up to 23,000 feet in, in, you know, in the Himalayas and, you know, various other things that require some effort. And, and yeah. that was sort of my curiosity was like, hey, Peak experiences are sort of these days, like everybody's curious about them, right? Whether it's meditation or it's psychedelics or it's sexuality or, you know, fit or it's live music or whatever it would be. Um, everybody's curious about peak states. But the simple answer is we've, we've kind of cracked that code. And we have for like the last 50 years, like the hippies, the baby boomers had no shortage of peak states, right? But where they really fell down was long-term stable practice. So the founding of the Flow Genome Project was like, hey, now we have neuroscience, we have anthropology, we have optimal psychology. We kind of understand what's happening under the hood of all of these peak states well enough that we can kind of demystify them. And once you've done that, how do you then take that inspiration, that motivation that comes from those things and apply it to long-term development and growth? And that's really the inquiry that I've been on my whole career. I love it, man. I have so many questions for you. So I want to, I'm going to go all the way back to you, you immigrating here. Um, and I come from a immigrant family as well. So it's, it is interesting to, to see those dual cultures or to, I w I'm an American. I was born in America, but my dad's Persian and I watched him not want to acclimate right <laughs> to, to the environment. So, so how old were you when you, when you came here? I was eight. Oh shoot! Okay, so so you were so you were like old enough to like be pretty entrenched in English culture, but but young enough where you were a kid, mm -hmm. and and so were you? 
what part of the U.S. did you guys move to? Did you come here to? Uh, near Annapolis in D.C. So the kind of that that's okay. central Mid-Atlantic. And so, so when 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 you first got here, and you know, having the kind of this this, I don't know. It sounds like was there a bit of a culture shock for you, or was it oh, something where you were no massive? I mean, I mean, my parents sent me to the nearest private school, which in bumfuck Egypt. Southern Maryland, which is where the, there was the naval base, which is why we had come over. Um, and it was just this literally like old school parochial Catholic school amidst the oyster fish, you know, oyster men and crabbers and tobacco farms. I mean, it was ass backwards. And this Catholic school wasn't even like Irish or Italian. It was English Catholics from like 1634. Like it was that crew that was still in those rural, rural counties. And so I went in there and it was like seeing first communion, but I was one of the, I was a sort of the goy, you know, I was like, I was the non-Catholic. I hadn't, you know, I didn't get to take communion in their worlds. I didn't like all of this stuff was just super bizarre. And my parents didn't give a shit. They were just like, go, go to school, <laughs> come back and have good grades. Nothing less than excellence is expected. And even if you excel, it doesn't matter because this whole system is backwards ass and provincials. It was just so. So by the time I got to high school, I just lied. I wasn't trying to like persuade my parents that it was really important for me to make it to you know to go to the homecoming dance or to you know do all these things. I'd just be like, "See ya, I'm out," and just had led led this schizophrenic parallel life, you know, learning about American youth culture at the same time, but not even oh, pretending that my parents would get it. Did you so so having like did your parents come from an academic background because it sounds like obviously academia was a was an option for you that seemed real I, I find a lot of people that have that that one of their parents or both their parents are academics is that part of your upbringing Yeah I mean interestingly my dad was like a sort of super genius polymath and he was offered a full scholarship to Cambridge at the same time that he'd applied to flight school in the Royal Navy. And the flight oh, wow. the flight school had an acceptance rate of like two percent. And Cambridge, I think at the time was, you know, six or seven or or eight percent. And since he got into the flight school, he went that route. Um, but he ended up with the military equivalent of a PhD in aeronautical engineering and, and, and was a test pilot, a military test pilot. So um, you know, and dinner time conversations were Shakespeare and acrostic crosswords and puzzles and quotes from classical Greek and Latin, you know, so it was a very kind of nerdy, um, <laughs> heady kind of family culture uh, as well, for sure. And then, and then I, I just pictured, I was just like, I'm going to be a professor with elbow patches and a wood paneled office. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And, and, and I was all but done on a PhD. So all, all but dissertation. So I just had the final big paper to write um, at the age of 22, because I'd, I'd gone to in fact, I still had a fake ID in grad school, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but, but, you know, so I, I was really kind of cranking along. And then there was just this one professional development seminar for grad students taught by an, an associate professor. And he's like, here's the deal. He goes, it's a fucking rat race out there. This is the beginning of like the temping of academia, you know, where you don't just get tenure in a nice office for the rest of your life. Sure. And it was like, here's the deal. You're going to need to do this, then you need to go postdoc. And then there's going to be, and then you're going to need to apply. And then there's all the other postdocs who have actually done more shit than you who haven't been hired for the last two to three years. And then when you get hired, you got your five years before you're up for tenure. And if you miss tenure, you're effectively put out to pasture for the rest of your career because you're now wow. too expensive. And there's just as soon back, go back and hire one of those fresh postdocs. And I was like, oh, stone me man i thought i was one year away from my elbow patches and you're telling me this this is a knife fight and and that's when we went and i was like i think i'm going to take a break 
and we're going to go and do more outdoor guiding, work at, you know, nonprofit, learn, you know, basically adventure and wilderness medicine and, and, and uh, outdoor schools for a while and then came back around to all this uh, with the Flow Genome Project. Interesting. Um, so uh, a question there. So, so it's, it's really kind of interesting enough, like when you described your dad, it, it, that it, there did seem to be this like adventurous side to him if he chose to go to the Air Force or Royal, I'm, I'm probably misquoting mis- what Ro- it's called. Royal Navy. Yeah, he hated the Air Force. The Royal yeah. Navy, excuse me. So was he, was he in flight school? He was flying planes and jets and stuff or was, what, what, he, what was his job there? Oh yeah, no, he, he was the chief test pilot on the Harrier, which is that vertical takeoff and landing plane. That's how he came to the States in the first place because the US Marines also used the Harrier and they were right. killing themselves. They didn't know how to fly it. And so he was sent over by NATO to teach them. And then he was teaching at the US Naval Test, test Pilot School. So for everyone that's familiar with Top Gun, right? Top Gun was actually below the test pilot school. So the very, very best of the pilots get into Top Gun. The very, very best of Top Gun get into the test pilot school. And the very, very best of them became NASA shuttle pilots. So my dad was basically training astronauts and and was flying the baddest ass planes that the F-18s, the F-14s, all of these, you know, the military grade fighter pilots, fighter planes. And his job was to push them to the limits of failure and then map it with differential calculus and then teach the, the active duty fighter pilots how not to kill themselves. Wow. I mean, like, <laughs> was your dad academic? No, but he got into, you know, he went and flew like the most gnarliest jets ever. And he was really smart. Um, <laughs> so that's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because when you start looking at the work you're doing around the, you know, flow and the human genome and all this, it's like, I mean, I see a direct point of contact there with what your dad did. So the, do you think some of this is like, nature nurture what do you what are your thoughts yeah i mean it's curious right so so he, my dad became a sort of honorary member of uh the naval academy class of 60 something because that's where all his friends were so we used to go up to all the football games in annapolis and my parents were like you know you're gonna go to the to annapolis one day and i was like well oh, son wow. of a bitch okay so um i've really only got two options right i can only either be a fight be a test pilot anything less is a step down Right. And I, so I have to be a fighter pilot, bare ass minimum. I couldn't fly, you know, P3s or helicopters or something like that. Or I could be a SEAL. And those are the only two options that have enough cred to meet the family, you know, the meet the family bar. And, and when I, and when I, um, and, but I was too young. I was too young graduating high school. So actually, I was 16. So they wouldn't let me in. And they were like, you're going to have to do a year at like some prep academy. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to do the remedial thing that like dumb hockey players go to. I'm going to, right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Um, and, and it was somewhat like conscious. I was like, all right, well, if I'm not going to go that military route that was kind of laid out for me, how else do I take life to the the realm of real consequence? And so that's where surf rescue, wilderness medicine, patrolling, climbing, guiding came in. And plus like windsurfing and kite surfing. I was like, if I'm not going to fly above the clouds, I'm going to climb above them. If I'm not going to risk my life, you know, in military combat or, 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 or training, I'm going to put myself in lethal situations. And, and then just by the by, I also just kind of love understand, coming to an understanding of something and then sharing it. And so the, the teaching, guiding, instructing um, sort of just naturally continued, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes, makes sense now. And I appreciate the, the backstory there. So, 
you know, fast forward to, you know, you're in grad school, you decide, you know, you're kind of living this dual life of, to your point, like almost killing yourself in these like really cool ways and being one with nature. And then this other side where you're part of academia and, and I get the reason of not wanting to, you know, go that the, put in the long-term effect of academia. If basically you're being told that, yeah, this is not a great path. Right. Um, on the other side of the fence though, did you, I mean, did you, would you consider yourself like a thrill seeker? I mean, cause that, I mean, I would, I mean, I think most people that are probably listening to this are like, and I'm just going to speak for myself. I mean, I grew up with people telling me what not to do so I wouldn't kill myself. So I was very risk averse around a lot of the stuff you're talking about. Whereas it sounded like you were all in on it. I mean, what was that something, was that the norm in your family? We were like, yeah, I'm going to go like swim in the ocean and do all this crazy stuff. And everyone's like, have fun. Like how, how, how did like, is that again, like I, I just want to frame that. Cause I think most people, I know I have a lot of friends who do backcountry skiing and they do big wave surfing and they grew up doing it with their dads. And this was like a normal thing. And their family went on ski trips and they, I mean, they were always outside. Whereas my family, I'm, I'm half Persian. I was just joke that my dad's version of camping was going to Vegas. So <laughs> like, you know, like it was just, it just wasn't a thing, right. Mm-hmm. For us at least. So what do you think drew you to that connection? Was it just uh, again, a family thing or was it innate for you? Like what got you to really ride on both those, both sides of, of the plane there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know both my parents. My my father was was English, but they emigrated to South Africa after World War II, and my mother's family was South African. So they both grew up in in Africa, and so everything from game drives and safaris to Cape Town and the coast and all these kind of things, and you know, and and boogie boarding and you know around shark nets and that kind of stuff, was very much a part of their life. And then when and they fell in love with skiing and in Austria and Switzerland when we were in the UK, but I was not even born yet. And then when we came to America. Um, and we were on the Chesapeake Bay, basically camping and fishing and water skiing became a huge part of our life. And then winters skiing, you know, on uh, up and down the East Coast. And so those were, that was the platform, you know, where I was like, oh, those are things I love to do. You know, water skiing and slalom skiing led to windsurfing and other water-based high-speed sports. Skiing in, in Vermont, you know, and in Pennsylvania and New York became moving to the Rockies. So like it was very much a, a wonderful platform that they gave us and a love of being outside and doing stuff. And then just wanted to take all of those things uh, as far as I could uh, when I had the chance. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Do you have any siblings or is it just you? No, I was the baby. So I have a five-year-old brother and an eight-year-old sister and they stayed in boarding school in England. So like People always ask, well, if you were only eight when you came, how do you still have even a shred of an accent? You know, and it was like, well, it was because I ended up fearing the ridicule of my family more than I craved the acceptance of my peers. And, you know, and and, and we just, and it just kind of stuck. I lost most of it getting, you know, getting high in in college. It's like the Beatles, you know, like it's very hard. It's very hard to talk with a clipped Oxbridge accent when you're baked. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million-dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. From canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. So uh, are your siblings, are they have the same affinity towards uh, the these higher adrenaline activities and outdoor stuff as you do, or is it more you? Well, my sister was a journalist for uh, National Geographic and the Cousteau Society, and she did one of those you know, article assignments of like, I'm going to go to ranger school in Africa and write about it. And then she fell in love with the head ranger, who then turned out to be the son of a woman that my mother had gone to boarding school with in Johannesburg. So that was it. So she's married and has very much a, a an adventurous life in that way. And then my brother, wow. my brother was a chartered accountant for KPMG in London. And my, my uncle was in the finance in the city and, and he was going that route. Uh, and he came out to visit us in Colorado once I'd moved there uh, for grad school. And uh, we were skiing winter park one day on a beautiful spring day smoking a joint on the chairlift being like and he's like fucking hell jamie i almost forgot this was out here and he went back and he turned in his notice much to my mother's chagrin <laughs> and 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 uh and he became a ski a ski instructor in Vail and a blues guitarist so yes he i completely uh sidetracked his world um, by a, oh, by accident it, but yeah what what a great that's a great story so um so once you got to this road where you're like all right man i'm not doing academia 
what kind of gives the path to the, to the to the human genome project i mentioned before I, I don't think i mentioned on the air that you know you and i have have a overlap with the stegan institute which is a mm-hmm. conscious leadership program i'm i'm a stegan grad ilp grad and actually teach their flc program right now to a bunch of companies oh, nice so i'm i'm a big fan of ran and his work and and i uh, love the stegan family but yeah i'd love to hear like kind of what was the path that from there to okay, okay all right well what next you know obviously you have a pretty um, diverse background right but what got you to this point where you wanted to get to the human genome project because i think that that i really want to understand that i know that there's been a lot of work and study to your point that people have looked under the hood and figured out like kind of how the biohacking works and how the you know all the different hormones in the brain and how these we can affect these but but we're not we're now in a different realm as you mentioned before and and, and i'd love to talk about that but i'd love to hear your path on how you got to the human genome Gene, uh, the genome project, excuse me. Yeah. The flow genome project, pardon me. Yeah. I mean, really, it was just, it was a continuation of, I would say, the, the, the singular thread through my kind of life and career is how do humans grow and develop? That's it. So, so the notion of flow states, uh, you know, my, my wife, Julie, is a Montessori director. So she was steeped in that form of education. Um, I was very, you know, I was deeply involved in experiential and outdoor guiding as was she, but I was like kind of deep into like curriculum design and this kind of stuff. And it included flow states. It included what happens when people drop into the zone. It happens, what happens of maximum absorption and and intrinsic self-motivation. And because, you know, came across Carol Dweck's work, which everybody knows now as far as mindsets, fixed and growth mindsets, you know, a a decade before she even wrote that book because she was publishing papers that were showing up in the Montessori community. And I was like, oh, this, this woman's on fire. Um, so there was all of that kind of background. And there was also all of the background in emergency medicine, wilderness emergency medicine and Alpine leadership. So decision-making, group management, all of these kinds of things. And um, so I was just heads down on that for a decade plus and was at a conference in Boulder. And one of Rand's colleagues uh, saw me present on exactly this, on the genome of flow. And then I got a call from Rand, uh, you know, a few months later, like, hey, you know, we do this really cool Stegen Leadership Institute, and you've got this really neat experience of leadership in critical situations. Um, what do you say you come and be a part of it? And I was like, man, it sounds fantastic. You know, you guys are taking leaders to the Esalen Institute. You're exposing them to, you know, Zen teachers and practitioners. You've got Navy SEALs. You've got all these wonderful, really cool things. And you're dedicated, you know, to doing conscious capitalism with John Mackey and others. Like you've got, you've got hearts in the right place and you're doing a kick-ass thing. And I was like, I love it. I love you guys. I'd love to do this, but I don't love Dallas. Um, and I'll tell you, right. I'll, I'll t- I said, cause you know, we'd lived in Boulder. We lived in Telluride. We lived in Santa Barbara. We lived in Hood River. We'd, we'd always been places that really made us come alive with beautiful nature. And we're like, Hey, we keep hearing good things about Austin. I'll tell you what, how about, how about I open an Austin office and I'll commute if I have to. And he was like, done deal. So that was how we ended up out here. And, uh, and then we ended up effectively just raising our kids in Austin. It's been such a, such an easy and fun place to live. And then, you know, last three years, everybody and their mothers also done the math and showed up. Right. Yeah. You were early adopter. Um, I just, I just, uh, yeah. I'm like Dallas, Santa Barbara, I went. To, I graduated from UC Santa Barbara, so oh, nice. I feel you. Yeah, I'm like, oh, it's, it's kind of a tough, <laughs> tough trade, you know. Uh, speaking of Santa Barbara, I, I, I believe we have an overlap with Nathaniel Shockin. Yeah, you, you guys. Uh, he's a he's a friend, and I actually did. A, I met him at at 
Esselon mm. come to come to and and uh, but he's been a guest on the show. Great guy. So that's cool, man. He's he's a Santa Barbara guy. Um, so that so cool. So you did the Stegan thing, and um and and obviously Stegan's amazing, and Rand's an amazing guy. Um, and and what what really transformed into the decision to move to the Flow Genome Project? Because and I want you to maybe maybe talk a little bit about Flow Genome Project. What what is it? Mm-hmm. You know how, who are you working with? I, I have a bunch of notes on it, but but I'd love for you to tell the audience what it is. What are you guys doing there? How are people leveraging this project to? Uh, if, if if someone who's attending it, who's becoming a part of it, well, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it was a. I mean, I'm profoundly grateful for my time with Rand and Stegan, and I learned so much during that time. And uh, back then, it wasn't just doing doing integral leadership program. There was also a consulting side, and and I was predominantly like like I definitely helped on the ILP and even helped co-create some of the learning to learn modules, right? Because that was a certain passion and interest. Um, but I was spending most of my time actually inside organizations, right? And and helping mm. them work. And it got to the point where Rand, you know, Rand and the other partners were like, hey, you know, you know, you, you let, let's explore what a partner track looks like for you. And, and this would be the, the, the milestones and how it would go. And I just kind of thought, I was like, oh my gosh, this would be this would be fun, meaningful, easy, and and remunerative. It would work, you know, as a career path. But I was like, if I find myself at the age of fifty hosting business lunches at the Austin Country Club to schmooze YPOers into an org redesign and a monthly retainer engagement, I'm going to stick a fucking fork in my eyeballs. And I and <laughs> and I will and I will be I, and I will have absolutely forgotten what I'm here to do. And then fast yeah. forward to my deathbed, if I look back to my kids and gave them some half-assed excuse as to why I couldn't quite do the thing I was here, you know, like, I was like, hmm, I have to, I have to make this transition. And this was like 2009. So it wasn't exactly like awesome and optimal times for career changes, but I was sort of like, yeah. I was like, oh my God, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And, and then, you know, back to family of origin stuff, I was like, it was, cause it was terrifying to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, because growing up great well, actually perfection was expected mm. right then i hadn't i would never be able to achieve greatness because perfection is the absence of mistakes and and greatness requires putting it all on fucking black and the risk i mean i've, I've heard a great thing which is like it's not art if there's not at least a 50 percent chance of spectacular failure and I had to do some hard, hard swallows and some really kind of, you know, and, and you know, thank, bless her heart. My wife never wavered once. She's like, we're going to figure it out and whatever you need to do, do. And, but it was terrifying to me. And I also realized like the whole PhD thing, I, while, like while I still, that was always one of my life bucket list checklists. I was like, re- why do I care about it? I care about it because I want to be able to write, teach, you know, and have a platform of credibility. I could go back and go back through that route, but really it is just a merit badge. Why, what if I just went and did the things instead right away? And so those were all the hard swallows, you know, and it's been, you know, and it's been a hard, um, deeply gratifying ditch digging project from then on out, you know? Yeah. Will you say a quote again? So if, it, if, because uh, I, I, I want to make sure I, I got, got that. You said if it's not 50, if, if there's not a 50% chance of like, uh, say that one more time. Yeah. I think it was like something along the lines of if there's not at least a 50% chance of spectacular failure it's not art oh my gosh i love that quote i'm gonna steal that yeah <laughs> that's cool I, I wonder where that's from um 
So, so yeah. So you took, so you took the risk, right? Like you, you went and put yourself out there and was it that when you think of the, the, this, I mean, you know, I guess it's called this, a, is it like a, it's a leadership academy. It's a, how, yeah. what would you like for, for a layman who, mm-hmm. who, who wants to be told what this is, what would you say it is? Yeah, super simply. It, uh, we are a leadership and training organization and it is a combination of uh, peak performance, optimal psychology and neuroanthropology, right? So, so peak performance, fairly straightforward, right? How do we perform at our best uh, sustainably right. and over time? Optimal psych, you know, what, what is, what's the interior, the inner game of, right? Le- you know, leadership and those things. And neuroanthropology, which is sort of an assessment of culture doing two things. One is take anything that's going on right now and be like, okay, that's an event, that's an issue, whether that's you know, political culture wars or AI hysteria or whatever it might be, what's going on right now? And then understand where else in history have things like this shown up, right? Mm. Then understand what's the mechanisms of action underneath these things. So for instance, uh, Molly Crockett um, was at Oxford, she's now at Yale, and she's done fascinating studies on the neuroscience of crowd and mob and group dynamics. And she actually presented at Davos a few years ago on this. And she's like, hey, when people get stressed and they're in crowds, political rallies, this kind of stuff, right? Their serotonin and, and they're isolated and alone, like in, in quarantine, those kind of things. Their serotonin plummets, all this, you know, do- dopamine go, goes spiky, um, you know, and, and oxytocin gets together when they get together in big groups. But oh, wouldn't you know it? Like people think of oxytocin as the love drug or the cuddle hormone or the trust molecule, sure. or whatever it is. It's also the ethnocentric curb stomp your neighbor hormone. You're right. So, oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. So, so when you get, <laughs> really? when you get juiced, it's why soccer hooligans are hooligans. Right. And it's also wow. right. It's why the mob, the mob mentality happens because what happens is you get flooded with like tribal primate monkey shit. Like we're together with our people and your ability, mm. your ability to other the other goes through the roof. Right. And so, wow. so, you know, Molly studied that stuff and you're like, ah, fascinating and understanding why it was getting worse, why we had the, you know, the Black Lives Matter rise. Not the only reason why there's a million deep reasons, but one of the reasons why the isolation of quarantine then exacerbated mm. our culture wars when we hit the streets, you know, and it's Antifa versus Proud Boys and stuff like that is like, that's a part of the reason why. And then she also studied Burning Man, which is the opposite. It's an ecstatic celebratory gathering, but she studied the right. neuroscience. So you're like, okay, this is not new. Humans have been doing some version of this dance forever. But now with contemporary science, we have insights into the mechanisms and we've got a, and we've got a data set. We've got more than one instance and we can kind of learn a bit. And then once you know that, then you know how to architect culture going forward because you understand how the building blocks snap together. So that's what we do. We basically train, we, we, we lead leaders, we teach teachers and we heal healers. And we do that by providing the tools and the practices and the experiences, including adventure courses in the canyons. We go with a SEAL Team 6 commander into the canyons of Utah. We do um, alpine leadership in the winter in backcountry skiing situations. And we do you know, digital trainings as well um, to give people the toolkits um, to lead you know, lives of impact and purpose. What do you think? Um, first of all, thank you for the explanation. I'm, I'm, and I know you, knew you guys did some really amazing trips. So that's that's super cool. And obviously, audience members that will be put, giving a connection on how people can learn more about this towards the end of the show. But and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but I have a question for you. So, so um, yesterday, we I interviewed uh, Lynn Twist. Yeah. Are you familiar with her? Yeah, yeah. Her work? Yeah. So, so she's on the show yesterday. And um, we start talking about source. And 
you know, and, and so what is, you know, I think that one of the things Rand says that, that I'm sure you've heard him say, or maybe you even a part of him, him saying it is that, you know, we have level, level five problems and level three leaders, mm. right. And, and that, and the world's full level five, five problems right now. And so when I start looking at what level five leadership looks like, at least from my vantage point, being a trained conscious leader and just kind of hanging out with folks that I think are doing interesting things that are trying to solve some of these problems. One of the things that I've kind of fell into is this connection with something mystical, right? Something bigger than us as humans. And, and, and we were talking a little bit about this. I asked Link, she talks about source in her, her newest book. And I said, well, what is source and what is your definition of source? And she, she talked it through, but I would, I'd love to hear your thoughts when we start talking about like the culture wars and the problems and, and you start looking back historically and you're like, yeah, like none of this is new. This is like cyclical. I mean, in a lot of ways. Right. But it's a new version of it. Right. Humans have historically done really fucked up things to each other. Um, and we've had these brief periods of, you know, peace and tranquility and we have the most complicated, you know, from an information, people having access to information standpoint, it's probably the most complicated time in the world ever. And on the other side of this, when, we, when I hear you talk about nature and being in these canyons and being connected to the earth, I think source, like, oh, let's go connect with source. And, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, how does that play into performance? And, and at least from your vantage point, or if maybe I'm talking bullshit but I'd love to hear your thoughts. If a, do you think I'm talking bullshit? And B, if you don't, like, how does that, how does, how do those connect? If, if we were going to really level up as leaders and humans, I mean, honestly, I would say anybody who's not at least pondering that at some level is is remarkably uncurious. You know, so, but as far as like cool. what is source, you know, uh, with with that, you know, is it E prime? I think that's that name of um, that language form that tries to get rid of all conjugations of the verb is. Because it just it, it right. creates false equivalency, so it's like you're never you're never allowed to use am, is, are, was, or were, and you just have to state things in precise relationships versus false equivalency. So, what is source beats the fuck out of me, but <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I like fundamentally, I, I took a crack at that at towards the end of Recapture the Rapture, that the most recent book I wrote, which was where does this information come from that seems to show up fairly persistently in peak states. And we kind of have the neurobiology of what conditions need to be present in a hominid with a prefrontal cortex and a, and a spinal column and a nervous system to prompt those moments. But once you have them, where the hell is all of that information coming from? Right? Because right. It, it does feel epiphanic. It does feel, you know, many people through history have assigned it to divine origin. It's the muses, it's God, it's guardian angels, it's ancestors, it's whatever it might be. It's not me. It's definitely not me, right? Some, some version of that. Um, and I kind of walk through four somewhat plausible explanations, right? And the first one is reductionist materialist. But in those peak states, and this could include meditative states, contemplative states, psychedelic states, whatever's ramping up your perception factors, it's just more of what's already in you. So there's no external mm. mystical, quasi-mystical anything. It's just you perceiving more than you normally do. So it's not okay. supernatural. It's just super 
natural. And that's sort of just expanded. You know, it's, it's basically the reducing valve of consciousness idea. So like Henri Bergson and then Aldous Huxley with his doors of perception said that most of us have a very tight little aperture. And then under peak states, your aperture opens up and that feels miraculous. So you don't need wow, to have okay. any external explanations. No, no, no sort of deus ex machina. No, no, no ghost in the machine. Nobody's doing anything. It's just you, more of you, right? That's level one. Okay. Level two is something along the lines of epigenetic expression, right? The idea that, you know, and, and there's, it's a controversial, very young field still, but, you know, you've probably heard on NPR or various bits that, you know, like Scandinavian boys that went through a period of starvation during puberty and world war ii turned out to be much healthier and have healthier offspring so that so basically the idea of like going through it forced intermittent fasting before your nuts dropped right like massively improved the health outcomes of your grandsons bizarre right hmm. but then also crazy things like both descendants of holocaust survivors having specific anxiety patterns Sur right. survivors of civil war pow camps died sooner so basically all these ideas of like actually it's almost like lamarckianism like you know how darwin was natural selection and L lamarck was basically the idea of like giraffes get long necks from stretching to reach the leaves and that was ridiculed and dismissed which was probably right but but it's almost like epigenetics is kind of like neo-lamarckianism the idea that mm. behaviors and actions that we take within our lifetimes not over generations of, of genetic selection but within our lifetimes informs what's get what gets activated what which genes get turned on or off and we can carry memories that are both physiological like the scandinavian grandsons having better cardiovascular health right but also psychological like the downstream descendants of civil war camps and death camps right in world war ii so you're like oh whoa so that's interesting is it possible that somehow we gain access to more than is just within our own biographies by the epigenetic pa passing on of that information. So that's another level. You're like, it's still me. It's still us. It's still mechanical materialistic. It's, it's genetics, but it's just our ups, updated understanding of genetics. Sure. Right. And then, and then you can go all the way to, um, do we have access to, you know, you know, this is, this is goes to like Wheeler, the, the physicist who was with Einstein and a bunch of others, but the idea that all, the, fundamental nature of reality is information. So if you go okay. with the, so basically it's all just zeros and ones, it's all just on or off, up or down, like even electrons, right? The whole thing of like the Nobel prize this last year was on about like the non-local entanglement of electrons, up spin, down spin. That too is a binary, everything, like the entire universe is just a zero or a one. If you, you mm -hmm. know, if you follow that thought experiment and the idea that when we're in peak non-ordinary inspired states however we get there um, that we are just decoding more of that infinite information feed so you can you know and then you can take it all the way to you know monistic or dualistic forms of consciousness monistic uh is going well actually dualistic is there's a brain and the brain supports mind right that's the two things right and that's mostly contemporary most scientists would think that Right. But our buddy David Eagleman right. at Stanford in his book Incognito floated the concept. And this is, again, an existing one with lots of backstory on it that brain or mind as receiver. Right. Like our mind is like a radio and then there's radio waves out there that we're tuning into. And that's more controversial. It has less consensus opinion within the scientific community, but it's also a fascinating prospect 
you know, and if you hear people like Joe Dispenza or other folks in that kind in the kind of sure. non-academic neck of the woods still, you know, barking up these trees, um, that's the kinds of things. You know, people talk about spinal columns and pineal glands and, you know, piezoelectric activity in the brain or whatever it would be, right? And and you're like, oh, okay, so that's that's another untested hypothesis for now. But it does seem to me um that the I mean, my experience, just pure personal subjective content is I have been routinely gobsmacked by insights and inspirations that have come, you know, into my brain mind that really, really don't seem like they're just unintegrated bits of my own subconscious. They seem to be timely. They seem to be ruthless. They seem to be funny as fuck. They seem to, you know, have a have a wicked ass sense of humor, you know, and, and you're just like, I was that me, like, dance, you know, pulling my own puppet strings. It seems, if so, that in itself is a whole other mystery of how we could be so wickedly smart and intelligent and hide that from ourselves. Um, but right, you know, and and but to me, it does seem like there is some element of non ordinary transpersonal element to it. But like, with all of that said, the fuck if I know. And so I can have incontrovertible, subjective, personal experience of that, but that doesn't then lead me to leap across the line of like provisional skepticism and presume that the very next thing I imagine is actually true. So that's what, you know, like hashtag, like let the mystery stay the mystery, you know, like, <laughs> right? Like sometimes it's just better to let the burning bush burn. And, and, and that is where, particularly in the realm of info marketing, Instagram shamans and, and ruthless, relentless self-help and hucksters, everybody is presuming to not just tell the mystery, but sell the mystery. And that right. to me seems like a tragic oversight or, and, and overstep. It's like all of humans forever have bowed down in the face of the vastness, right? And awesomeness and awfulness right, of our utter insignificance in the big scheme. And that to me actually feels like an incredibly healthy position, humility and yeah. awe and reverence and not knowing and being, and, and being comfortable with the not knowing and proceeding anyway. Yeah, I love it, man. Uh, and I love what you just said because, I mean, I have a really hard time believing that just because the apertures opened up a little more that suddenly this thing that I've been like really struggling with forever, I get the message that I've been waiting for that fixes everything at the right moment, at the right second, at the right time. And I'm like, oh yeah, that was just all inside me all along. It just <laughs> happened to pick this exact moment that I really needed the fucking answer. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, and, I'll and, tell you one. That, well, you, you go ahead and finish yeah. this thought and then I'll wrap. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, look, I've had experiences that are inexplainable and yes i'm sure by the the odds the any if there if every and any situation can happen just based off a of pure chance then you could argue that those things should could have happened but i'm like there's no fuck there there is no fucking way that happened at that moment in that way without there being some other intelligence at work that created that because it's just it, and because it involved other people like i've had these moments with where, where, where we're doing like getting ready before a journey and and I mean, I'll, I can get into it for, I, I mean, I'll, it's a long story and I don't want to burn up time on the show for it. But I, all I have to say is I've had moments that are inexplainable that have led me to, to your, to where you ended your statement of saying we are insignificant and, and I am, I feel very comfortable with that and that there's, 
bigger things at work that I don't want to try to explain. I'm just more curious than anything else. And that's, I love your, I love your feedback. So anyway, I'll let you carry on, but I, I had to say that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that old Shakespeare quote. There are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than your philosophies. You know, you're like, <laughs> yep, I reckon so. You know, and anybody who presumes, presumes to have plumbed the depths of the Misto just hasn't gone deep enough. You know, like, like, like it's the sort of, there is no fervor like the newly converted. And, and so people who are just dabbling, you know, it's, it's sort of psychedelic novices and aficionados. Like when I began my journey and that they talk about like, you know, 2014, you're like, shut the fuck up and take a seat. You know, like you have no idea what you're yeah. talking about. So, so there is that sense of like, you just don't know enough. It's the whole, there's old mountaineers and bold mountaineers and no old bold ones. You could say the same about psychonauts. Um, that there's certain psychonauts and provisional psychonauts and there's no fucking old certain psychonauts um, because right because because the mystery is limitless and vast and mediated through selfhood genetics the prison house of language right and, and, and cultural context so we are not looking at the same thing every time people bungee jump into a peak state and and the only people yeah. that would presume any kind of false certainty just don't have enough data points on their map. But that said, yeah, we're it, gaining more data points. You know, like there's more people right. punching through. So like having a cartography of the sacred or whatever, or the numinous or the sublime or the, you know, the non-ordinary even, like it does feel like we should get, we should be starting to cross map and we should start to be getting a sense of what are the physics of the metaphysics? Like how does, how do those non-ordinary states and spaces actually work? Is there alternate intelligence is there interactive intersubjective intelligence is there multi-dimensional information layers like i don't know but we could be starting to cobble together and there there are people on the fringes of certain science um that are starting to try and map that stuff but like to your point about like i've seen some things that don't make sense i was just reading sebastian younger's recent account he's that you know war journalist writer he's done all sorts of you know very well-known books and he had a near-death experience this last year like literally had like an aneurysm or some weird thing in his driveway, like unexpected, bam, he was like early fifties, healthy guy. And he had a near death experience where his dad, who's dead was like, here I am, son, come with me. Let's go. And he's like, Whoa, you're dead. No. And like, literally it was almost like dad as tempter, which was kind of also bizarre for family dynamics, but nonetheless, like right. had to reject his dad's offer to come back to this plane. He's like, I am a secular, rational atheist. This rocked my world and I still can't make sense of it. Right. And precisely yeah. because he's Sebastian Younger and he's a secular rationalist atheist, when I read that, I'm like, fucking hell. That's not like touched by an angel, like ABC after school special. That's not that's no. not some evangelical preacher who's like, I've seen the kingdom of God and here's my best selling book to tell you it's all going to be okay if you just you, you donate to baby Jesus. There was no he had no skin in the game. In fact, he was reverse incented, you know, based on his worldview and, and concept of self to actually have that experience. And he had it fucking anyway. Right. So to me, I bias that quite strongly. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting data point. You know? No, no. He had it inside him all along. Yeah. And the aperture opened up and then his dad totally like rocked his world. That's bullshit. Yeah. He just, he just, <laughs> I, I, he just got in touch with his inner Shirley MacLaine and it all just fell out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, uh, circling back to, you know, the work, like, so when folks come and they're like, Hey, I want to, I want to level up. I want to kind of make sense. I'm, I'm, I have this curiosity of how do I have sustained peak performance? Cause I think like I'll use myself as an example. I, that's, that's what I want. 
I'm like, how do I show up and be the best version of myself every day? And, 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 and how can I take the intelligence that's out there, the research that's out there, the, the, the folks that are really, you know, for lack of better words, geeking out on this fucking shit Mm -hmm. and, and, and then bring it to me in a way where I can then, you know, hack, if you will, to the fi- the, the a better outcome without me having to figure it out for myself. Because I really feel like this type of work that you guys are doing mm-hmm. is for folks like myself mm-hmm. who are trying to level up and want to work with people that are on the the, the, the cutting edge of, of this idea of leveraging flow and leveraging like the all the access that you have to create for stronger, sustainable outcomes. Yeah. So, I mean, at least, you know, at least the cut at it that we've taken based on our best you know, best thoughts and experience is um, starting with foundation is person, you know, basically individual peak performance. So how do I both, and, and this is, you know, again, sort of back to memorable hashtags, just like hashtag do the obvious. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, all the gadgets and gigos and pills and swabs and headsets and, and apps are all bullshit being sold to us by people looking to get inside our pants, AKA our wallets, right? None of it matters outside of do the obvious, which is like sleep more, move often, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, get outside, make love, be grateful, right? Digest, like weep, don't whimper, right? Like like some very straightforward things. And we love to be distracted by bright and shiny objects. Sure. Right, especially in America. I mean, America, like like uh, Tim Wu, who's uh, the legal professor at Columbia, um, who coined the term internet neutrality. He's advised White Houses. He's a bad. He's one of my favorite contemporary thinkers and writers. He's almost always a decade ahead of whatever the hell's happening. And he wrote a book called The Attention Merchants, and it was basically the commodification of our attention, but also the conditioning of us into consumer zoo monkeys you know, like that we are, right? And it goes all the way back to like the late 19th century. Like literally the founders of modern marketing were was an actual, like honest to God, former snake oil salesman, like the kind that used to do the little <laughs> wagons going around the American West, like yeah. literally, and two bum, bummed out like itinerant preachers. So you have this evangelical Christian, like road to redemption. And you have the secret ingredient that's going to change your life, which is no different than, right, paracetam or quercetin or whatever the hell's, you know, the next flavor of the week inside your neotropic stacks. And you're like, oh, shit, like that is literally it. We've just, we're trying to purchase uh, redemption slash eternal life. And, And so this wildly and uniquely American redemptive Pentecostal evangelical Protestant work ethic consumption machine of which like Don Draper and Mad Men was like this little band in the middle, like transitioning to the sixties to the seventies. Um, right. That's us, you know? And so to back all that stuff off and just be like, Hey, get your house in order, have daily practices that allow you to prepare for and repair from the life you have to go live. Not as a, this will teach you to levitate. This will teach you to make six figures in your pajamas. This will give you the Airbnb, hashtag Lambo, life of your dreams, you know, fuck wittery. This will simply just help you be resilient and responsive and responsible. So let's get that sorted, right? So that's everything from, mm-hmm. you know, how do you take an hour of your day? So one twenty-fourth of a day and put it towards focus, recovery, nutrition, awareness, time management, that kind of stuff. How do you do that in a, in a way that's quick enough and light enough that people will actually stick with it? Then how do you plan your weeks, your days, 
your weeks, like a secular Sabbath, like what's half a day a week that actually you dedicate to deep renewal, awe and inspiration. What's a day a month, mm. what's a weekend, a quarter, and what's a week once a year and build that, what we call a hedonic calendar. So like, how do you have increasingly deep and meaningful experiences that keep the momentum, that keeps the flywheel spinning on a high vibe life, basically, right? Me at full strength. And then sure. get that sorted. And that's, you know, that's our, usually our sort of introductory program and training. Cause if you don't have that, then everything else gets harder as you add layers to it. And then what we, you know, program we call leading through fire, which is really just based on individual flow states or peak states are relatively straightforward, you know, but figuring it out with a bunch of other tribal primates is so fucking hard. And it's the fail point. The fail point is almost always human culture, tribal dynamics, politics, egos, conflict, passive aggression, you name it, right? All the monkey stuff. And so taking tools, Bob Keegan at Harvard, many of the folks you're familiar with, um, Bill Urey, um, work with Carol Dweck um, and uh, Aliyah Crum at Stanford, lo lots of other folks that we draw from and just being like, here's the toolkit where a little bit like Mr. Miyagi, like wax on, wax off, like here's the six or seven tools that work for 80% of the stuff you're going to face. And if you learn these really, really well, you will get to step up. It does not mean it, it frees you from the human stuff. It just lets you not get sucked into the same ruts everybody else does. And that's, you know, six tools that work for 80% of your troubles. And then what's the remaining 20%? You know, that's guts ball, right? Like that's courage, that's wisdom, that's discernment, that's grit. Like can't teach that stuff. You can hold, you yeah. can pick people up, you can encourage them, you can cheer them up, but like that stuff is you. And, and then we take it to the next level with like Bud's selection, you know, in the Utah Canyons with readers, you know, with literature and poetry and Harvard psychographics and assessments being like, okay, now you actually want to go try this with live fire exercises. Let's up the ante for that. Um, but really, I mean, all of this, and I just, we just concluded a, a course and I was just sharing this with folks at the end because I feel like I'm forever having to disabuse people of the seduction of the promise of the quick fix, you know, yeah. and the promise that like, if you only learn this back, you know, back to Tim Wu and the, the, the crazy Christian under, you know, under un, substrate of marketing is if only you do this, then you will be redeemed and all of your problems will be solved. Right. And it's like, no, it actually, all these things do is get you to be a halfway functional human, right. At the doorstep of, of taking responsibility for these lives of ours. And there's that Zorba, the Greek expression, you know, where somebody's interviewing him, talking with him on the boat. And he's like, he's like, what's going on, Zorba? And he's like, oh, you know, it's, it's the full catastrophe. The house, the wife, the boat, <laughs> you know, like, like the things. It's the full fucking catastrophe. And, and to me, that feels so much more honest and, and, and valid. It's like, no one gets out of here alive. We're going to bury our parents, right? Like every, like 100% of marriages end in at least one person grieving. You're either burying your partner or you're divorcing them every single fucking time. And yet every single wedding is a celebration of hope. You know, like if we're lucky, we raise our kids so they walk out the front door and never look back. That's if we did it well, you know? So, so like there's so much pathos and so much broken hearted openness about bearing witness to this human experience that that to me is the role of peak states, right? They help remind us of what we might have forgotten. And they help provide the energy and inspiration to mend where we're broken so that we can get back in the saddle 
and go and do what's ours to do. Man, mic drop. There's nothing else to say there. <laughs> I mean, I, I could pick your brain for two more hours, but we're, we're out of time and, and I want to respect your time. So I know you have the, the podcast, the books. Um, why don't we get to spend a couple minutes on the podcast? Because podcast listeners, I'm, they know how I am about this. You have a, I'm one of six podcasts they're probably going to listen to and might as well be yours as well. Uh, tell them about the podcast and then we can tell them where to connect with all the different stuff. But man, the Flow Genome Project sounds amazing. And I think our, our listeners need to go check it out. So yeah, tell them about the podcast though really quickly. Sure. I mean, basically the whole idea there was like, okay, so if you do do all of these cool things, you know, if you do do all the personal optimization and, 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 and you figure out how to lead and galvanize the people you love and or responsible for, what's the, what's the outcome? What's the, what's the end goal? And, you know, in the spiritual traditions and even in the kind of new age pop psych traditions, it's sort of enlightenment, you know, and we're like, nah, that doesn't seem to be very true or honest or, or helpful, you know, for us these days, what's the goal? And to me, it's being a twice born human, right? Which is basically just the, a riff on the notion of like, Hey, the first time we were born, none of us had much of a say in the matter. You know, mom and dad bumped uglies and swapped genetic material. And there was a little flash of green zinc as sperm met egg. And here we fucking are. And we get spat out of the womb, right? Which was warm and cozy into this cold, harsh, scary, unkind, weird, weird world. And most of us are like, fuck this. I didn't want this. I, I you know, no, somebody did promise me a rose garden. I was back in it vaguely Freudian, you know, and... <laughs> And so we seek to escape it or bypass it, whether that's with sexuality or whether that's with substances or whether that's with doom scrolling on our Instagram or TikTok or what, you know, or, or whatever it is, or sh over shopping or chasing brass rings and material consumption. We're all trying to escape this mortal condition. So when you have a death rebirth experience, which is these days quite programmable, this literally like neurophysiological correlates and you can tune them and shazam, you'll have that experience and you get to go, oh, just like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, like there's no place like home. Just like Jimmy Stewart, you know, coming back from his suicide attempt in A Wonderful Life, like, oh my gosh, my life matters. Oh my gosh, it was slipping through my fingers. I didn't know how precious this was. That's the doorstep of becoming a twice-born human, where we consciously offer consent to showing up fully in our life instead of, you know, yeah. instead of instead of being basically like a petulant child, you know, pissed off or bummed that we didn't get what was ours the first time. So that's the whole premise of just like, we don't need fancy names. Let's just call it being a homegrown human. Like I'm here, I'm now, I put down my roots and I'm, and I'm making my stand and I love the people I love and I know what's mine to do. And, and here I am. So the podcast, Homegrown Humans, was really a chance for me to talk with and explore um, many of my heroes that kind of showed up in Recapture the Rapture. It was just basically that idea of, hey, I've written about you. I've, you've, been, you, you've inspired me. And this is everyone from Rick Doblin, the Harvard PhD, who's the founder of MAPS, the leading researchers on uh, MDMA and clinical trials, to Wade Davis, the kind of original Indiana Jones, also Harvard anthropologist, Gabor Mate, Mark Hyman, um, all sorts of uh, Amy Cuddy, um, uh, Helen Fisher, uh, the, the Kinsey Institute uh, sexologist and anthropologist, um, all sorts of folks that uh, have literally lit me up and, and expanded my frame and I basically wanted to have conversations that were thoughtful and provisional. I'll tell you actually where it came from was watching Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson's uh, com mm. conversation a few years ago. And they both just yeah. dug in 
and night like 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 jordan's holding out for like archetypes and mystical and meaning and sam was doing the clinical neuroscientist there's nothing here but and they were just talking past each other and it felt like actually their audience was more advanced than they were it felt like there were there were mm. people in the audience that were like come on guys there's a both and here like you can definitely create a synthesis out of these antitheses won't you just do it and they both just dug in and so the yeah. hope there was a conversation with people who have had enough transpersonal or non-ordinary experiences in their own lives that they can approach these thorny questions with some curiosity and some humility to get to the, the synthesis. And, that, and that's really the premise of the whole, the whole inquiry. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. So much here. Jamie, you're, you're a badass. I love it, man. I love all the stuff you're doing. I'm super interested in the Flow Genome Project. I'm going to check this out for myself. But um, audience members, go check it out. Flow Genome Project, the book, Recapture the Rapture. I'm super pumped to read that. Podcast, Homegrown Humans Podcast. Where can people, where are all the connection points if people want to learn more? Give us our websites and yeah. Instagrams or wherever you're sending people to. Sure. So the simplest is just flowgenomeproject.com. And then Flow Genome on Instagram. We're not on TikTok. Sorry, kids. Um, and, uh, I think Facebook's a ghost town, so don't bother. <laughs> they're doing, they're, they're, they're doing a lot now with virals, so <laughs> they might be coming back. <laughs> oh man, Jamie, such a honor and so much gratitude to have you here to have this discussion and to learn more about the work that you're putting out in the world. And, uh, yeah, from here, from the greatness machine, man, much appreciation for you. For sure. Darius. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure is mine. Listeners, listen, hey, uh, leaders were givers. Share this with anyone who you think need, needs to hear it, which in my opinion is everybody. So yeah, share the episode. And until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on. So that you don't miss any of our future episodes, we have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, 
Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.